episode 14 with choreographer Kyle Abraham. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with American dancer and choreographer, Kyle Abraham. Born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, into a home of loving and supportive parents, Kyle's family instilled in him the sense that he could do and achieve anything. He discovered his love for dance in his late teens after being cast in his high school musical, Once on This Island, later receiving his Bachelor's of Fine Arts from SUNY Purchase and his Master's of Fine Arts from New York University. Now this all sounds lovely and quaint, but Mr. Abraham is a force to be reckoned with. After performing with a number of prestigious companies, including the Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Company, he founded his own namesake company in 2006, Abraham in Motion, now known as AIM. And as it were, this is where Kyle has created many of his critically acclaimed pieces, including The Radio Show and Pavement, which, inspired by John Singleton's 1991 film Boys in the Hood, truly exemplifies his seemingly eclectic style. Like a writer of prose, Kyle weaves together memories of his childhood in Pittsburgh, along with the impact of violence within Black communities, with a dash of W.E.B. Du Bois and a dose of Jacques Brel and Johann Christian Bach. He's choreographed for the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and New York City Ballet. He's worked with Misty Copeland and Beyonce. He's a Princess Grace Statue Award recipient and a Doris Duke Award recipient and a Bessie Award recipient and a United States Artist Fellow and a MacArthur Genius Fellow and, well, you get the picture. Recorded safely and remotely, this conversation with Kyle explores his journey to dance, how he deals with his own insecurities, what's it like being fired by one of your heroes, how to balance empathy and ambition, and his journey back to dance after his own extended hiatus. It is with great pleasure to introduce to you a master of his craft, Kyle Abraham, to the IBI Podcast. I actually wanted to just begin with like, what's your superhero origin story? Like who is Kyle Abraham? How did Kyle Abraham become Kyle Abraham? Like with a capital K and a capital A. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love that. Cause I'm a huge comic book nerd. Um, you know, I, I definitely come from extremely supportive parents. Um, we weren't like, super wealthy folks by any means. Um, but I was never made to feel like I couldn't do anything. Um, and my, my mother would tell me that I could do anything, which in some ways is trouble, troubling, especially for someone that doesn't like to make decisions like me. Um, but I think maybe part of the interesting thing is that my father and I, you know, I think we tried to figure each other out, but it wasn't until I started dancing that um, we really clicked. Um, he would pick me up, take me to classes, like stay until whatever time I finished rehearsal for something at nine, 10 o'clock at night and pick me up and take me to school right away in the next morning. Um, just super into it. Um, and we really 
really got on well uh, once the dancing started, which was kind of ironic to, um, and really kind of sad in some ways for me because um, in his later years, he winded up um, having an early onset of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and aphasia. So by the time I finished college, um, he had already been diagnosed with uh, an early onset of dementia. So we didn't really get that many adult years to connect. Um, but I mentioned that because when his Alzheimer's was really kind of getting further along, anytime he put on music, he would dance. It was the oddest, most beautiful, like, thing that like had never happened because he wasn't someone that would just get up and start dancing growing up. Like he would dance, I guess, but like nonstop. Like that, my, my dad would not get off the dance floor when he was like in his assisted living place. That's amazing. And so you're from Pittsburgh, correct? From Pittsburgh, very much so. <laughs> from Pittsburgh. And I remember you saying that you, you know, you studied, you know, cello, you played piano. And then when did dance come in? And how yeah. did it come about? Sure, yeah. So, yeah, I did all the, a bunch of different instruments. I think that was part of the thing with my dad, because <laughs> I, would, I would quit a bunch of different things all the time. He'd try and get me in, like, basketball and baseball and did karate and everything. And he was just like, you just quit everything. <laughs> but um, I started dance uh, when I was about 17, I think it was. Um, I was 16, I guess, when I was cast in our high school musical. We were doing Once on This Island, and uh, I was a big rave kid in Pittsburgh, um, and I had one friend, my friend Greta Polo, who was in school with me, and she studied dance. Um, and we went to raves together all the time. But I went to go see the Joffe Ballet perform to um, Prince's Music, a show called Billboards, and I just was like so excited, and she saw the level of excitement in me with dance that she got me to audition for that musical. And my whole dance journey has just been a lot of really great support and um, encouragement from friends and from teachers. The teachers at my high school from the musical saying, let's give you a scholarship to take dance class over the summer to get better for the senior year musical. And then that teacher uh, that I was studying with that summer being like, you should come to our high school half day uh, to study dance more. And then from there, those all of the teachers that I had in the performing arts high school showed me videos of Ulysses Dove and Garth Fagan and Bill T. Jones, Arnie Zane Dance Company coming to my high school, Philodenko coming to my high school. Um, I just was like so overwhelmed with um, possibility and in inspiration. And what did you like? What did you feel when you like took that first dance class? Maybe, maybe this is the thing that my dad connected with is that he saw me putting forth the effort. Um, like I got home after that class and I wanted to get all of those steps right. I wanted to learn like a pas de beret properly. I wanted to work on like whatever the port de bras thing was that they were talking about in that class or hitch kicks. Um, like all these things that we just started this first day. Um, I was just in it um, with my cello. I mean, I think because uh, again, living in Pittsburgh, so many hills, I got chased by a bunch of dogs while I was <laughs> carrying my, my cello home in elementary school that I didn't want to keep bringing it back home <laughs> to practice. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't practice that much at home. Um, but I did play, I played from probably like, I don't know, maybe it was third grade on, third grade all the way to, um, all the way to senior graduation of high school because I was playing graduation. Um, 
But uh, yeah, once I got that dance bug, I think they just saw that focus in me. And when when was that when was that like pivot point when you realized like that dance was where you were going? Like dance was the thing. Honestly, that's like in waves. I feel like there are these different periods where um, I've stopped dancing for a period of time, and then um, I come back to it and I realize that like dance is actually it's it's my longest relationship, sometimes an unhealthy one. <laughs> But um, that I'm actually in love with dance in some way. Uh, and I think that's been a continuous learning um, curve for me. Because after I finished college, and I went to SUNY Purchase eventually for dance, um, I, I wasn't thinking I was going to college even and studying dance to be a dancer. I thought all along I was going to be a choreographer. But um, having a really bad experience in a company situation as a dancer made me want to leave the whole kind of dance career path in every aspect out the window. So it was, you know, there's that adventure, there's um, me being in a relationship with someone that never really wanted me to leave um, because it was a long distance relationship. And I was like, why, why should I go back to dance? I got a man that loves me. <laughs> he want me to go nowhere. I'm good. <laughs> Forget this dance stuff. Um, but then when I when that relationship didn't work out, I was like, mm, can I still plie? <laughs> what, what I got? <laughs> Is the porter bra still working? Um, yeah, and I, I think and it's it's just always been there. You know, it's it's that thing for everyone, for you, probably any of your listeners, where like, you know, whenever we were growing up and like super emotive, you put on a song and you would just dance. And I still need to do that, and I've always needed to do that, even in the times where I was taking my a moratorium perhaps <laughs> from dance. Yeah, so what there's a couple of things I want to circle back to. One, what was that experience? What was that company experience that made you want to walk away? Sure. Yeah, I mean, well, walk away uh, puts it in perspective as if I chose one. <laughs> but I got fired from that dance job. Um I mean, I so I idolized uh Bill T. Jones or anything dance company. I idolized him, I still do. I idolized his dancers, the whole experience. And um, through a host of things, I winded up dancing in that company. Um, there's a good story, which I can go into if you like, but I can try and keep it short. Okay, uh, it's, I love telling because it's kind of funny. So I, my senior in, high, senior in college, I was um, invited to take company class with Bill T's company. Go to company class, I get to meet Bill. Being the dance geek that I am, I brought like, a bunch of his books with me to get, to get signed, not for a job, just because I love that man. Um, and I already had like autographs from all the dancers from my senior in high school when they came to do a lecture demonstration. So um, I met him, he offered me an unpaid apprenticeship at that time. And I was like, okay, sure, I'll consider this while I still think about moving to England because at that time, after graduation, I was thinking of going back to music for a bit to, um, focus on studio composition. This is like, you know, late 90s. This is like uh, Ronnie Size, Portishead, you know, Bristol, England had a really particular scene, Tricky, all that music out there. Um, but I got a call right after graduation that one of the dancers from Bill's company got injured. Ironically, it was a dancer who invited me to company class in the first place. Um, they told me they were having an audition and I didn't really know my timeline of any moving. So I go to the audition. Um, um, 
I become like one of four people that they keep at the very end. One guy they give the, uh, an unpaid apprenticeship to, me they give a paid apprenticeship to and they fire the person that was the paid apprentice. And another person didn't get anything. And then another person was given the job. The first rehearsal, uh, the dancer who got the job was like, I'm just gonna walk out and get some air. I'll be right back. He doesn't come back. <laughs> and they're like, well, keep teaching Kyle. You know, we'll, we'll figure it out. So they keep teaching me the choreography. And the next day, uh, the guy never comes back, just does not come back. The next day, a couple more dancers are coming in, people that I know from the community. Um, but I'm still sticking in there. And they wind up giving me the job. But while I'm there, uh, one important thing that I didn't mention is, although I told you they fired the male paid apprentice, there was a female paid apprentice who knew the role already. So I think some of the dancers are like, well, why don't you just hire her? Um, so there was that situation. So I, I wind up getting the job. And when I go on tour, it's me and this other dancer, this paid apprentice, we're both kind of like splitting the roles while we're on the road for a period of time. And I just was having a really hard time with every aspect of it really. Like the, the, the company wasn't the same company as it was when I was there, when I was watching the work, um, you know, five, six years pre previous. Um, and Bill himself was in a different choreographic space. He was much more interested in, in lines and uh, classical form than he was when I saw the work uh, in the late, in the mid nineties. Um, so there were all those factors. And then at the same time, there was a videotape that they were making of me doing the work they sent to the one dancer that didn't get anything. Um, all that to say, when we finished a couple tours, we come back home and I am demoted. <laughs> and another dancer is uh, put into, put into the, the job. Um, and a week later, I get fired completely. Um, but it was fine because I think by that point, I kind of checked out. I realized that it, I didn't want to be a dancer in his company. I wanted to be in the room while he made work. And I wanted to be around the company because um, I totally idolized that man. Um, but the one beautiful thing is when he fired me, it gave me the opportunity to tell him how much I loved him. Because I felt like if I said that when I was dancing with him, it would have just seemed like I was kissing his ass. And I, you know, I didn't want to be that person. So I was like, listen, <laughs> thank you. I just want to tell you how much I love you and appreciate you. Um, I'm so grateful. I feel like nowadays, like watching RuPaul's Drag Race and like <laughs> when he says like sashay away, I'm like, oh yeah, I feel like one of those queens who, <laughs> who gets the boot. But then you like, you know, you say to Ru, you know, thank you, you've changed my life. You do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it was very, it was very and and do you do you and Bill still t still have a relationship? Do you guys still? Oh yeah, we have a much better relationship now. We we talk on the phone. <laughs> we we go out to eat sometimes. Uh, me, him, and Bjorn. You know, it's it's really it's really really beautiful. He called me when my mom passed away because um, she made she made him sweet potato pie. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's a wonderful wonderful human being. He and Bjorn both. Um, That's. I'm, that's amazing. Um, and then I, I want to also circle back to this idea of your father yeah. and dance um, and how that came later in life, um, or at least his expression of it came later in life. Um, because I found, you know, being a black man and being a black gay man, you know, my relationship with my father has always been tenuous. And interestingly enough, it also wasn't until I really started performing that my father and I's bond started to grow. But as I've gotten, as, as I've matured, I've realized 
that I'm my father. Mm. And in many ways, I feel like I may be living out uh, a life that had he been born in a different time, you know, in a different place, he would have as well. How do you how do you relate to that? And how does your relationship to your father um, play a role in the work that you're creating now? I know you mentioned his aphasia, um, which I know has come up in some of your work as well. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's beautiful to hear. Yeah, I, I, I definitely can relate. I mean, um, although I, I'm not rocking my mustache right now in full, um, my, when I, I kind of fell in love with like, I'd never had one before. And I got, I had one like for the last year and a half and was just thinking in some ways how much I looked like my dad, especially when I was getting a little that COVID weight, I was getting that little dad bar going. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, there's so much uh, about my, my father that I just really admire um, and have always admired. Um, my dad, he like never drank. I'm not, anyone who knows me knows it's like, maybe at best I'll have a drink, but it's very rare and far in between. I don't really curse, like maybe at a random time, some expletive might come out, but it's pretty rare when that happens. Uh, my dad never cussed. <laughs> um, one thing that I can say about him that I can't say about you, about me is I've, I've only heard him ever say one bad thing about one person. <laughs> I don't, I, don't think, I don't think anybody can say it on me, but um, I just, I, I, lo I love the way he, I love the way he, he navigated through the world. Um, he was a really tender guy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's things that I, I look back and I, I wonder, it's like, as a rave kid, like, there were times that I had, like, barrettes in my hair, and I would want to take them out before I got home or before, like, my parents would see me. And there was definitely one day that I didn't get it out in time. And I know my dad saw it, but he didn't say a thing. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I mean, my mother used to tell me, because I was out to her when I was like 15, I guess. Um, we had a conversation after watching The Crying Game, which was my favorite movie at the time. <laughs> but um, yeah, she was just like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know if you should tell your dad. You know, so we've never, he and I never really had that type of conversation about sexuality, but he's met like, partners of mine, um, two that I lived with at different times, you know, one came for Christmas, but he was, by the time that guy came for Christmas, he was already like, you know, very far along. Um, uh, but uh, the first one, yeah, he would pick us up <laughs> from, from his art studio, you know, <laughs> so it's different, different time. Um, so I don't know, it's just, you know, some of those things were unspoken, but with him and dance, uh, it's, it's, he was, he was a proud, he was just a proud, quiet, man um i didn't know until like maybe even a day later that he was at my like last track track meet that i ever ran um i never knew he had ever gone to any of them because i never told my family <laughs> about them that i can remember um but it's it was it's really beautiful and sad to know that i like we never had those conversations um i know he was proud of me but yeah i don't know i don't i'm not trying to crown this podcast <laughs> 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 no, it's totally fine. And we could totally, and, 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 and let's pivot. So I do have a question like, so for you, what question does Dan's answer? Or what answer does Dan's question? Hmm. It's funny because when you ask that, I feel like the one thing that I was going to say, I think is maybe, maybe it's one and the same. 
Um, maybe it's very yin and yang. It's really the, a question of um, who I am and how I feel. Um, because we hold so much history in our bodies, and along with that history, we can hold so much joy, sure, but a lot of sadness for someone like me, um, and a lot of um, struggle. And I think you can see that in when you watch me dance, the struggle, um, because I, um, even in places that might not be as, um, some places that might be more flexible than others, even those places sometimes are approached with a lot of tension before the release. Um, and that's something that um, I think is really apparent in my relationship with um, this world. Um, it's like, you know, yeah, being black, gay man from Pittsburgh, but it, from a certain part of Pittsburgh where it's like, you know, right at the bus stop is right where the gang members hung out. But my street was like a little bit more secluded. But the only thing separating me from getting shot is like someone ideally dropping me off so I don't have to take the bus. <laughs> um, and there have been times where I got off the bus and got chased by, I don't even know how many gang members um, because I had on a burgundy. I'm like, burgundy's not red. <laughs> so like, are you gay kid? It was all the same. Red. <laughs> so I was like, you know, so they, yeah, they were coming for me. The, the Crips were coming for me because I had on burgundy poly uh, polyester pants. Um, but yeah, one of my neighbors saw me, grabbed me, threw me in the car. Um, and all, all of that has like affected how I approach this world, um, but more so how I live in dance and how I even struggle with dance. I struggle with, um, you know, ideas of um, beauty and aesthetics. Um, and you see that in the fact that so much of my material tends to be more gesture based because I have insecurities about my, um, my feet and my legs. Um, so if I'm making dances on myself, I may not um, do that as much. People may say, oh, you're just being super expressive. Sure, but we can also be expressive with our legs and the rest of our body. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, there's so many ways um, that it, it definitely lives in this kind of, um, kind of yin and yang um, world. And, and speaking of insecurities, like how do you deal with your own insecurities? Um, I mean, even you know, being fired from your company job with your, with, your, with your hero, I'm sure brought something. But dance is also rife with, you know, never being perfect and what you don't, you know, what flexibility or facility you don't have versus what you do have. How do you, how do you deal with that insecurity? Um, sure, yeah. I mean, I don't, I think now I totally embrace that in some ways. In other ways now, I'm just like, Screw it, I'm going to be as articulate as I can be with my body and, you know, sure, it's like, if I'm gonna be on stage with Wendy Whalen, I'm gonna wear black socks so you don't see these biscuits, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But other than that, I will, I will still let my, my legs and feet be however articulate as, as I can allow them to be and I, I still constantly train them. Um, but I, I try to make work um, for myself and for other artists um, first um, with, how we are feeling. Um, I ask whomever I'm collaborating with how they're feeling, probably in an obnoxious way every day, just I wanna know how they're doing so we can make the work its best. Um, how can it stay honest? Um, and that's the most important thing. So with insecurities, um, I'm not really, I don't feel like I'm in that kind of place 
Um, although if I'm doing text in the work, it tends to be in some ways a character or a caricature of people that used to make fun of me um, or that used to drive me crazy. Um, but at the moment, I'm, I'm hoping to honor people that I loved um, and or love. So I'm, you know, trying to, sometimes I try and live in my father's essence when doing a show like the radio show or um, the new works that I've been making. We're making this project that's all D'Angelo's music. But for me, it's honoring my parents and those aunts and uncles that, you know, aren't blood relatives, but you still call them aunt and uncle. And so thinking about the way that they interacted with each other in the um, early to mid eighties, um, just trying to live in the richness of kind of ownership that they possessed. Um, and so you can't really be insecure and do that successfully. Mm. Mm. Uh, and you, you mentioned like this two year hiatus or break that you took from dance. When was that? What precipitated it? And, and what was that journey back? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess in some ways it's even more than that. I think it was probably like, yeah. I mean, so I, I got the, I got fired uh, December, right before Christmas. <laughs> right before Christmas um, in 2000, turning into 2001. And um, that was actually ironically the day I signed my lease on my apartment in New York. <laughs> it was a big day. Um, but uh I still continue to dance and try and figure it out for a couple months. Um, I take class periodically, but then I think the like more legit break in me saying, I don't really want company work um, came soon, soon after still. So early in, in the 20 in 2000 and 2001, um, I would make work, maybe like a duet or a solo, but I wasn't trying to kind of really be super engrossed in, in the community. Um, and I came back to it uh, in two ways, I guess. One, um, dating, I was dating an artist in Pittsburgh and uh, he was going to go to Goldsmiths and I was going to go to the Laban School only because I was like, well, this gets us both to, to England. And um, once I'm there, I'm just gonna focus on music. I'm gonna like, I'll sing a bit, but like I'll use this like free, uh, it wasn't free, but <laughs> use this uh, visa to get me there and figure it out from there. Um, but I realized when I got to Laban that like, when they told me that I couldn't take dance class, um, there was only one technique class that I was allowed to take as a choreography major. Um, and just other issues I was having while I was there, I was like, yeah, no, I need more dance in my life. Um, so I decided to, um, go to NYU for grad school, only so I could reconsider my relationship with New York, having um, signed my lease on the day that I got fired from my job and then struggling for however much longer I was there. Um, and then also figure out my relationship to dance, having you know had such a bad go of it um, after graduation and dancing with Bill then. Um, and so during that time, it was really to figure all that out. Um, and I realized, during that time, so that's between 2001 and 2004, which is when I went to NYU. Um, during that time, I think I just started making work and figuring it all out. Um, it probably honestly wasn't even until 
maybe like a year after grad school when like I'm struggling, struggling, struggling to get by. Um, but I was struggling to make work and make, make it, whatever that means. Um, I wanted to make space to be in the studio. I wanted to um, celebrate the dancers that I got to work with and try and tell my story in some way. And that story started to become that much more realized um, after I kind of had, um, let's say, a soft opening of this breakthrough. <laughs> <laughs> and and is that something that you maybe still periodically do? Maybe just like take a step back or retreat for a second? Oh yeah, I mean, we're doing that right now. This is my, this is my vacation. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on vacation this month, uh, and I've never felt so so inspired in my life. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is a good time. I love my dancers, you know, <laughs> like, but it's nice to have a break from all of it, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I love them when I'm with them. I love them when I'm away from them, sure, but um, I don't feel pressure right now, and I don't think that, I think maybe for some people, the best work that they make may come from pressure who knows really um but it's nice when i can actually think about work um on my own kind of timeline and in a way that i'm not having to um think about other pressures in, in any capacity um other than moving into my my place <laughs> no and that's that's actually a good segue so like what is that what is that process for you in creating a dance? Like, where does that begin? Um, what are your sources of inspiration? And like that step-by-step -step process? Yeah, sure. I mean, it can change every time. I mean, I think, so like, if you, even if we start with like the two works that I um, am now premiering in 21, which would have premiered in 20 and in 21, uh, this, the uh, D'Angelo work, so first I was like, I want to make, I knew I wanted to celebrate, I wanted to celebrate black love, right? And I know that can seem a bit kind of like, uh, in some ways even commodified right now, um, but maybe not, who knows. But that was a thought a couple years back um, when I was having an audition for a dancer. And then I started realizing that that work, I really wanted to be about um, honoring D'Angelo's music in some way. And then as we get in that process, so many other things start being uncovered. I realize my association with seeing black love is not only my parents, but those aunts and uncles that I was mentioning and mm -hmm. wanting to really honor them in some way. I love the fashion of the time. I mean, think about the fashion in like the eighties, like black fashion in the eighties. It's kind of amazing. Um, so yeah, wanting to honor that, wanting to celebrate us as a people, wanting to uplift us. Um, I think, especially when I look at previous works, um, where I am being very um, kind of forthright with like what is happening right now. How can we address this thing right now, right? Which is, can be very daunting and very sad and frustrating and or hopefully inspiring, but there's a lot of heaviness to it. And I'm not saying this work doesn't have any um, heaviness or hopefully has depth too, but um, I wanted to celebrate us in a way that I didn't feel like I had previous. Um, so, so that work started with D'Angelo's music, thinking about what songs um, are, are about love in an uplifting kind of way or some, something like that. And then from there, I generated a, a lot of material 
Uh, and then I set that material on the dancers. And then from there, once they learn it, I look at it with them and then we talk about it and we make changes or maybe I'll give them assignments. Um, but then totally different from that is a work um, that I'm making um, in collaboration with the composer Jalen. Um, it's, uh, it, it was initially, a pro well, it still is a project that is um, looking at Mozart's Requiem. Um, but reimagined um, because Jay Lynn is an outstanding electronic composer. Um, I wanted to see what happens with her approach to that music. Um, but I also want to take a different spin on uh, this work because so much of my work had focused on death in some way and the murdering of many black lives. Um, and that's been something that's been in my work from the get-go, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, you know, but, um, but this work, I wanted to treat a little differently. I wanted to make it about um, reincarnation in some way in the afterlife. And I think maybe for me, it's because I'm so, especially after my parents passing, I'm so consumed with death and um, thinking about all of those types of thoughts that I wanted to make something somewhat kind of fantastical in some way. Um, that plays with ideas of reincarnation, looking at folklore and mythology, um, and how we can kind of make a much more abstracted project than I ever have before. That's really more so about um, the music, the lighting, and the costume design, um, and letting that kind of be the thing. Um, and I think the movement, I feel good about the movement, but I'm actually not generating but so much of it, really. Um, I'm just kind of like, maybe in that process, I've made, um, like what we would call maybe like three, four phrases. And when I say phrases, I really mean about maybe 10, between 10 to 30 seconds worth of steps. <laughs> um, and I mean, well, I did make one section that's about seven minutes long as a full thing that I just made on my body. But other than that, it's like probably gonna be a 50 minute project. And the dancers, I'm really working with them, giving them prompts. Um, to kind of like explore this movement and um, create movement on their own with different um, direction. You you mentioned earlier about um, you know generating movement and then also giving dancers assignments. What does that mean? Does that mean like you go into the studio and just kind of improvise and work on things and then offer them to the dancers, or what is that process like? It, again, it really depends. <laughs> um, it depends. I think um, in the case of D'Angelo, I recorded myself doing 40 minutes worth of material. So pretty much dancing to every song that we're using except for maybe two to three. Um, one song I got in the studio with two dancers and I built a section on their bodies. Um, like, how about this? How about that kind of thing? Um, other sections, some dancers are doing exactly what I did in the video. Um, and some sections have phrases that I made um, where I developed a sequence of steps and taught them to the dancers and then asked them to make a variation on those series of steps. Um, and, and really any way you would think of a variation is how those kind of assignments can be approached. Um, you can have people translate what I've made to the floor and maybe their materials all floor based, but their links to the initial 
material that was in my body. Um, in the case of this uh, Mozart project, um, I'm really kind of like, I allowed myself to kind of, kind of section off or separate the dancers or group them um, by elements and by um, like their zodiac elements, <laughs> uh, which is not something I've ever done before, but it actually has worked in a really exciting way. Um, but from there, each element and or each zodiac was given different prompts. So I don't think, in some cases, the prompts were similar, or I would do a thing where I'd say to one dancer, I'd say, Marcella, uh, okay, make a variation on this phrase. She makes the variation. And then I say to another dancer, CJ, I'll say, um, CJ, take Marcella's phrase and mutate it. So then it becomes a variation on a variation. Um, and that becomes this whole other way of approaching and or living in this material. So then you have now three phrases. Each one might have been, my first phrase might have been 15 seconds. The next one might now be 20 or more. And then CJ's variation might be even longer than that. And then there's so much possibility to just take that material to make even a section of dance or to really base an entire dance on. Pretty That's endless. it. That's amazing. Um, I love that process. And as you were speaking, um, you know, I thought about this idea of what is it like, one, thinking about, you know, the lived experience and the histories that are um, embedded into our bodies, the histories that we carry with us. What is that process like to see your histories on another person's body? And move yeah. through another person's body because I, I say it also from this, you know, from my own standpoint of like photography, where like every portrait I take is actually really a self portrait, right? You know, yeah. so in a dance perspective, what is what is that like to see your life lived out in another person's body? Yeah, that is. We ask these good questions. <laughs> um, you know. It, it can be very difficult um, because it's not only a level of trust um, and openness, um, but there's a whole lot of vulnerability that I think can be taken for granted um, from people in general, because you are saying, I want to share this part of my life with you and I want you to speak for me, please. Um, and when you're saying speak for me, you're saying, I want, you to think about the inflection. I want you to think about um, uh, accent, pause, um, passion, all of those things need to come into play. So for a dancer, how then can they take that and then also invoke their own history into that experience and work in a way that's tasteful and respectful? And I think sometimes it gets challenging with things like dynamics because I dance really fast and I may not be super flexible, um, but because I'm not super flexible, I can do certain things a lot faster than people that have a lot of range. So for those dancers, it can be that much more of a challenge to have to try and bring back in a limb that can go on for days, but mine can only go on for a second. One beautiful example of taking a work that I made for myself, putting it on another dancer and seeing kind of their interpretation in a way that I felt really honored the work, was a dancer of mine, uh, Jay Neal. Um, they were doing um, Inventing Pookie Jenkins, which is already a really layered and complicated work for me to 
have asked Jay if they'd be interested in doing. Um, Jay, someone who identifies gender non, uh, non-binary, and I'm wearing a tutu and playing on this, these ideas around um, masculinity. And usually when I'm referring to these terms, I don't really use masculine or feminine. I just talk about hard and soft. And I don't think either one needs to be connected to a gender. But there's something that could seem forced when you're putting it on someone who is non-binary um, or trans in a way that like can complicate things. Um, and I wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable with the work and that we could just say, okay, do you want to do this? Or, you know, let me know. Um, but they, they wanted to do it. They were game. And their hair is longer than mine is or was or could ever be now. <laughs> um, and the approach to, to what they did with it was so tasteful and so just dope that like when I talked to them about it for the very first time after um, seeing them do it, I was emotional. I felt like it was like a BET Honors Awards. <laughs> I was like, what's well, somebody's honor me and, and singing, not trying to out-sing me, you know, the kids and so on. No, no, they, they like, they did it with honor and they, they did it with, um, they did it in, in an owned way. Um, that was really cool. Like I, I could tell that like they put on this particular character and it was their version of Pookie. Um, and I, and I love that. Um, there are other instances where I'm trying to get things out and I have to, sometimes it seems, it can seem challenging to try and get someone to, um, open up, um, all the more as, as someone performing the work. But then I realized that maybe I'm not being as open as I can be as well. And maybe that's what needs to happen for that dancer to get to the place that I'm really hoping they can with whatever it is that we're putting out there. And what do you look for in a dancer? Like say there's an opening tomorrow and aim that's, that's Abraham in, in motion. Um, there's an opening. Yeah, no, I'm just like the, the listeners may not know what, what the hell I'm talking about. Um, but like, yeah. So like, what are you looking for in a dancer? Like, what is that thing? It's like, Oh, it's you because at least from seeing your work, like, of course, everyone is, you know, there's a level of, you know, technique and talent that has to be there, but to do your choreography, there is more, there's definitely more. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I've had some really, I've had some really eye-opening experiences happen this past year with dancers, um, where the timing of different things didn't work out, and I learned a lot. Um, uh, yeah, I learned I learned a lot, um, and I think something that I one of the most important things to me at this day and age is to have good people around me. And that's not a judgment on anyone that is not with, around me or is whatever. It's just, it's just something that you realize for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. That like goes beyond a job. You, you need to have really goodness around you. Um, so I really want to make sure the energy feels right with someone. Um, other than that, I think a certain level of maturity is really important. Um, which is a challenge, right? Because especially as, as I navigate through like summer programs, winter programs, different colleges and universities, I'm like seeing these talented dancers. I'm like, oh my God, I'd love to work with this dancer, but maybe I need to wait a year until after they graduate so they have some um, company experience before they come to me with certain expectations 
that company life is supposed to be a way um, where there's a whole other reality to what it really is. And most companies don't tour as much as mine does. So there's a whole other level of um, information that needs to just kind of be learned, ideally before they come to me. Um, they need to know that I am all about being on time, even though, even though I was late for this podcast. <laughs> I listen to my brand, you know, doing my dishes. Um, yeah, no, being, being on time is like next level important for me. Um, being, being open, you, you can't, I understand the, how complicated that is because um, it's not saying that I don't want people who have uh, places to go in their journey um, or have had hard experiences in life. The Lord knows I've had mine. Um, but you need to be willing to, there has to be a place where you can trust me um, so that I can trust you. And ideally, we start off there. Um, what happens after the first month or whatever else is a whole other ball game. But you have to walk into that job open and in a trusting place. And aside from that, uh, it's great if you, I look at dancers in a host of ways. I look at some as great replicators of material. So they're doing exactly the way I'm doing it. I look at some who are really great um, generators. So I, you know, you don't want but so much of your own self in everything when it's an hour and a half long or hour long dance. So who else can, can generate material? Um, and then other times, sometimes it's an oddity. It's someone who doesn't look or move a thing like me, but I'm just drawn to their uniqueness. Um, so those are three things other than the general openness that I was talking about. Um, I love it when people can talk and listen. That's super important. That's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like the greatest notes, I think. <laughs> um, I want to, I also want to go back to this, um, this concept of reincarnation and the lessons and or downloads you've had around this concept. How do you view death? How do you view reincarnation and spirit? Hmm. I am struggling with it, honestly. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I think I'm, I mean, I'm in a really curious place like so many people with COVID that like it's affecting the output and the way in which we're, I'm able to play with um, this work um, and any of my works right now. So there's that. So everything's on a certain type of pause, but then I'm also thinking I've, I have been struggling for years, especially since both my parents are deceased now, like about what happens next. Like i Definitely pray. I pray every night that like, if, if their spirits are out there, that their spirits are happy and free. Um, I pray for that every night. Um, I don't know what happens. I don't know if there is really a heaven, but I don't even know if there is, a, if, even if there's a heaven, if it's a good place. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I pray that if, if that is better than floating around, uh, if that is supposed to be better, who knows? Because th nobody's talking about that comparison. That like, people say, oh, you know, you're so-and-so, your parents, your grandparents, they're, they're right there with you, they're right behind you. I'm like, but if they're right behind me, how are they in heaven? Like, or do they, do they come by at times when they hear me talking about them? 
and then they go back. Like, I don't really know and I don't really understand. And I see that in honestly the most like childlike naivete. Like I'm not saying it with any malice or in any kind of like whatever, like I really, really don't get it. Um, so I'm thinking about that, but I, I'm also um, hoping to do some, some studying of looking at uh, African folklore. Um, that's gonna be an ongoing process. This dance doesn't premiere until next summer. Actually, that's not true, until next spring. Um, so I'm gonna take some time during this lockdown that we're all on in some way um, after I get my apartment up and running to dive into that. Um, looking at Greek uh, mythology, something that I've always loved in, in Roman mythology since I was like in elementary school geeking out in like these like special um, academic programs um, where we would just do that. Um, so that's a part of it in some way. Um, I love those stories because they're so twisted in so many ways. Um, yeah, thinking about people that like are gods that came down to earth as some animal and then they produce this child that is half this and half that or has this particular skill or thinking about, you know, different people than, you know, um, X-Men lineage and new mutants and all that stuff and X-Factor and um, people who are the Morlocks. And so they, you know, they live underground, which technically of, all of us right now are kind of living in kind of Morlock lifestyle, so to speak. Um, but yeah, just thinking about all that and then looking at Jake Lynn's album artwork covers and thinking about this kind of like, um, kind of like digital animal kind of thing too. So this whole other take on this world and society that's like looking at like, I think I had, I've been watching that movie, um, what's it called? Um, not Attila, Attilia, something like that. It's like this like animated movie, super dope. It's like half, half human-ish, half cyborg kind of thing. Super dope. Um, but that became part of the process too, like thinking about all the in-betweens, um, what dies when our body leaves us. Uh, mm. Like, does your spirit still transfer into this other being? Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I guess I, it's a lot, lot of work to be, to, to kind of dive into still. A lot of questions, which I think is a good thing. I think it's I think it's beautiful. I love I love that exploration and you know the constant you know just the asking, just the just the curiosity. Um, I also find it's interesting when you talk about like your grandparents and you're like, wait, are they behind me? Or are they in heaven? Or but wait, but if they're behind me, can they be in heaven or do they go back to heaven? But it's yeah. interesting because I think one one thing to maybe even unlock that question. It, which may be challenging because your work is about this is is to release the concept of space and time. Mm. But your work is all about space and time, like literally, it is literally that. But you know, thinking that it's not necessarily an either or, but a both and. At least my experience with like spirit and God is that God is always kind of a both and, and and rarely an either or. And, um, but anyway, we could talk about that another time. I could, I could, I could go on and on. Um, but I want to pivot to like just a bit of your, like your own personal journey, you know, as a choreographer, 
um, you know, you won the MacArthur when you was it was it thirty five? Oh, is that right? Maybe, <laughs> probably somewhere in there. So mid thirties, mid thirties. Like yeah, what? No, no, no. And and for those of you listening who may not know, the MacArthur um, Foundation is an incredible. Um, honor that many great people receive and it's generally called like the the genius grant essentially um and so for you receiving that award what did that feel like and how did things change for you as as this was bestowed upon you oh my god um in so many ways lots of things um honestly i, I didn't feel like i deserved it um and that is something that I struggled with for a very long time. The work that I made coming out of that was not my best by any stretch of imagination. But that, that I, I can't take honestly, but so much responsibility for, because there's a lot of complications during that time uh, where it was the first show of mine that I was not producing myself in some way. Like, yes, I've, I've you know, had commissioned work, sure. Um, but I, us I usually, or at that point had been all hands in everything that I, every aspect of the work. Um, so when the works that I was making premiered right after that, um, there was like not as much time in a theater that I should have had for making two totally different evening length projects, premiering a week after each other, not even if it was a week, maybe a couple of days after each other. Um, and so, some, so like a lot of aspects of that work wasn't done. Um, and, and one of the shows winded up kind of coming together um, maybe like six, seven months later. Um, but dealing with that was a challenge, both aspects of that, like thinking about expect people's expectation was really troubling. Um, yeah, I think it wasn't until, so that was, uh, that was 2013, uh, but by 20, in 2016, 17, um, 20, yeah, around 2016, I, um, I started making this work, um, I had written a grant to make this work called The Social, which was like really looking at like this club that my parents went to when they were in college. That club was called The Funky Butts, <laughs> uh, but this dance wasn't going to be called The Funky Butts, but it was like thinking about um, these social spaces where I can make a work that is all about social dance. Um, because that is my background, as I mentioned before, total rave kid, um, grew up in the hip hop scene as well. Like that was a big, that was like the thing for me. I wanted to get away from the concert thing for a minute and switch it up. But then a lot of other choreographers were making work around that time, similar themes. I was like, mm, let me just take a break from that. And in taking a break, I thought about um, something that was a totally different way of working for me, a uh, work called Dearest Home, which was all about love, longing, and loss. And I honestly, at the beginning of that process, didn't think it was going to be the downer that it was. Um, I should have realized, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite artists is Morrissey. I grew up listening to the Smiths forever. So it's like, I wear black on the outside because black is all I feel on the inside. I'm like, there is so many layers to me saying that out loud. <laughs> I'm like, thank you, Morrissey. I'm going to take that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it also, in a really bizarre, somewhat cryptic way, winded up addressing things that I didn't know a dance was going to have to address. 
um, because I wrote the grant for that work in 2015, it premiered in 2017, but my mother passed in 2016. And the relationship that I had moved to LA for, um, however many years back, ended um, just maybe like a month or two after my mother had passed. So it was a lot of change happening in that time um, for me to deal with. Um, but it actually wound up being really healing because um, I, I kind of took ownership over the work again and was like, you know what? I am going to put out work now that I really believe in and do it in a way that I really want to do. Um, Dearest Tome was only viewed in the round um, and could never be seen by more than, I think something like 425 people or 450 in a proscenium. Like the space could not be big. And at that time, I was given a lot of great opportunities to perform in really big theaters. But I was like, no, that's not what, that's not what I want to do. That's not what's calling the work. Um, and so ever since I've tried to look back on that, uh, that transitional time um, and trying to make work with that in mind going forward um, as best I can. And, and, and you mentioned um, in an LA Times article about how after you know receiving this, like you were just trying to strike while the iron was hot, and um, and a lot of your personal relationships suffered, you know, because of it. Um, what what was that process like? Like what? Like why? Like what? Could you talk about that? Sure. I mean, I guess you know, I, I think a, a good friend of mine is going through something similar right right now. Um, I'm not gonna put them on blast. I think I think there the lens shifts and you become hyper aware of everyone around you. Um, you know, around the time of the MacArthur and of um, making some of the you know some of the works that maybe didn't work as well. Um, <laughs> some of those. Um, I had I think seven people from the company either were fired or left, seven. And it, I mean, I don't have a big organization. Maybe there, at that time, maybe we had 12, something like that. So within the course of um, a year to two years, that's a, that's a lot. Um, and so, so there's that aspect of it. There's me thinking about everything that I'm doing and saying and how um, it could be misconstrued or the way I look like, you know, oh my God, I have to, you know, and it's frustrating because you, you then want to take certain ownership that maybe you didn't take before. And maybe in some ways that's a great thing. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking about, oh my God, this stuff is, could potentially live on indefinitely. I need to be that much more involved with everything and be so tight. And I can't trust anyone to put anything out without me seeing it first. And all that became part of the narrative or, how much time can I make for my friends or dating someone that was also in the field? How does this person feel about the accolades that I'm um, getting and they're experiencing? How does that make them feel about their work? And then I start kind of, kind of dimming my own light um, on purpose, especially when I'm around them because I don't want it to be a thing, you know? Um, yeah, I remember, remember one time uh, I got a, really big award, um, it was a Doris Duke award, um, which 
I felt amazing about getting, like I was crying, but they announced it on my then boyfriend's birthday. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> why why lord why <laughs> so it's like you know it's like one of those things i should be celebrating be happy but i didn't want to say anything on that day at all i was like mm, that's just <laughs> but then you can't say anything the next day either because <laughs> you're still trying to like let this be birthday week <laughs> so i'm like not gonna go on facebook this week <laughs> So that was, that was hard. Um, and all of that kind of plays out in so many different ways. It's that thing of like, that we all experience, right? It's like when you don't actually say what you're feeling or what you're experiencing to people and you just try and keep it in and work it through on your own, little things start to spill out in ways that you aren't in control of. Um, and I think it definitely played a part on, on my life in a, a whole host of ways. Um, yeah, and I, I kind of, like, looking back, I think my mother was trying to, um, trying to be silent uh, around whatever she was going through so that she didn't seem like a distraction, which she would never have been for me, um, but didn't tell me that she was as sick as she was because she wanted me to go out on tour and, and do this and do that. And um, I would much rather, of course, uh, be with her and be around her. Um, but yeah, it just, it was such a very, very, very challenging time. Yeah. I'm going to drill down a little bit. Like, how did you reconcile that with this, with this, with this person who was in the field and, you know, you're like, how do I balance this? I mean, I'm single. I'm living this apartment by myself. I mean, I think we, we can love and appreciate each other and not be together. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're totally different people. I think it's, um, yeah, there's nothing really much more I can say about that. Yeah, but then also, but then also like, you know, the significant portion of your company, like stepping away, like what, what was that? And why do you think that happened? Um, I think that's a lot of things. You say, like you heard that voice go up, <laughs> I think, yeah, that was, a, that was a lot of things. It was such a transitional, transitional period. Um, I think for the first time, people were being held accountable for um, things that I think just kind of fall in line with professionalism. It's like, if you are late more than however many times for a job, there need to be some repercussions. So that was the first year that those things were in place. So it's like things like that or... Um, yeah, you shouldn't be on your phone in rehearsal. You know, the first time it's a warning, second time it's like, come on now. And then the third time, there's no excuse. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole host of things like that or a dancer that, you know, left because we weren't your dream company. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm very so humbled and, and I get emotional thinking that like dancers entering college know who I am or what this work is. Like that wasn't the case back in 2000 and, uh, 2012 or 2014, you know, people didn't know. So if you were in college four years previous, of course your goal was to dance for whatever other company. Um, so I lost some of my favorite dancers at that time to other, other companies. And of course we maintained uh, closeness and friendship, but it was definitely a, a challenge at that time. And it took, honestly, 
you know, one dancer in particular, a dancer, Shalvar Montero, who you know, uh, went on to dance for Ailey. Um, and Shalvar was with me since he was in college. And having worked with Shalvar for as many years as we, we had together, we, I guess we were together for about four years he's in the company. Um, I started making roles, a lot of roles, very specific to him and to the artist that I know him to be and to his humor. So when you bring someone in, of course you want them to kind of take an ownership of that work in some way, but it's really hard to erase the love you have for how you first saw it. Um, and so in some of those cases, there were dancers that didn't last long because I was like, yeah, this isn't working. <laughs> you're not, you're not him. <laughs> you know, like, they're like, yeah, of course I'm not him. <laughs> you know, um, so there was a lot, a lot of that that had to happen. And I, I definitely keep, I keep learning in the process about what that means for me making material on dancers or with dancers. How do you balance, I mean, your output is like insane, like incredible. I mean, like you were talking about like literally pre premiering like two different dances that were opening like one week apart from each other. Like how do you balance ambition and empathy? Well, I mean, empathy is something right that we're just constantly um, working on, I hope. <laughs> everybody um but luckily i i feel um a genuine connection uh to empathy i think because of the experience i've gone through in my life and um and watching being someone that likes to watch people like that's a lot of what being a choreographer is is really observing people um so so there's that aspect um the ambition i i, I don't i don't know i don't feel um and ambition, especially right now, right? It's like I'm watching the news and people saying that a lot of the women that are up to be um, the VP uh, candidate, um, they're like, oh, ambition is such a dirty word. You know, if a woman's ambitious. So it's like such a really complicated thing. Um, so I, you know, I think I'm, I'm thinking about that lens. I think about the word, I'm like, eh. <laughs> um, But I don't know. I think because maybe because I'm a huge Prince fan and it's like, you know, if you remember that Oprah interview of Prince uh, back in 90, 95, 96, um, he had like over 425 songs in his vault um, that he could have just released whenever he wants. You know, I, I try to make um, work that seems honest to me however I can, whenever I can. And yeah, I have projects lined up through 2028, um, but I, I, I have to be... Um, really honest and I need to step back and make sure I know when that work feels done to me um, because someone would be like oh that looks good but I'm like yeah no thank you I appreciate it but it's not it's not done so mm. I just need to make sure the space is there to not only have the output but also to take the space away from the work for a period of time and then look at it before um, an audience sees it as a so-called finished product and what's the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? And what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Well, I, you know, I think, okay, the complicated thing with that question is, um, so Ralph Lemon, someone that I idolize, right? Like he's probably my, maybe my number one in the dance field, like 
you know, I look at him, I'm like, I want to be like Ralph. I want to be him. <laughs> uh, and I remember calling him one day or emailing him and he said something about like pushing through exhaustion, um, which I think works beautifully for him. Um, but I listened to that advice and it's not that it's bad advice, but I listened to without listening to myself first and got off, uh, got off two long flights, like flew from, um, I think we were in Chile, from Chile to New York, from New York to Lyon, and then went right in the studio because I had to finish this solo. <laughs> and then I left in a wheelchair. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, you know, I learned, I learned a lesson, learned a lesson there um, that's twofold. Yes, it's, um, it's not necessarily about pushing through exhaustion, but it's more so about knowing the limits of your exhaustion. Um, so I think his advice was really great advice, but I probably need to do, needed to do a little bit of inward work before putting that advice into action. Um, so I guess in some ways it might be a yin and yang answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I love that. Um, well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me here. Like this was such an amazing conversation. Um, really great to know you better. And I want to acknowledge you for just the amazing work that you do. Like, um, you know, having seen it, having witnessed it in person multiple times, you know, like I, t like I told you before, it's like afterwards, I'm like, if anybody touches me or if anybody speaks to me, I'm going to fall in the aisle and burst into tears. Um, so you really speak to the black experience in, in such a way that feels magical and lyrical and like moving poetry. And so I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for, for being like the Bill T. Jones for another young black dancer who is, you know, you know, because mentorship is important and just showing your face in these spaces and continuing to pursue excellence is so important. I think we take for granted just the simple act of the presence of someone who looks like you in a space um, that allows you access to dreams and, ima and imagination, which is actually what this podcast is really about. So thank you for that. Um, it's beautiful to see what you do, and I look forward to seeing what you will continue to do. I can't wait to see this D'Angelo and Requiem piece. Um, but could you let us know where people can connect with you, where they can learn more about your dance company and like how they can support yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for those words and um, for the opportunity to, you know, tell people where to find a brother. <laughs> um, on, uh, I mean, I need to change my change my Twitter handle, um, but my Instagram is Kyle underscore Abraham underscore original underscore recipe. Kyle Abraham original recipe, and uh, the company is. Uh, currently, the, the, their handle is Abraham and Notion. Our website is abrahamandnotion.org. Um, and yeah, there's lots of really great things that you can do to support not only me, but uh, other artists like me and, and our community at large. Um, my dancers have made a really wonderful um, kind of initiative on their own um, called Aim for Change, which is on our website. So there's a list of organizations people can donate to on there. Um, but more so, it's also great, uh, especially knowing that my website's up for renewal any day now, if you want to donate to us. <laughs> so
So anything that people can do, um, yeah, as you're saying, yeah, I have a lot, a lot of things that inspire me and a lot of things on my plate that I want to push forward. Um, but I can only do so with um, the resources that become available. So hopefully people see the work. Um, they want to support the work. They want to spread the word um, about what we're doing and how we're doing it. So hopefully that continues. Amazing. And Kyle, one last question. What do you imagine for the future? What is the world you imagine? What is the world? Oh my gosh. I'm too much of a realist to probably even answer that question. Um, Outside of constraints of capital and whatever, like if you had the power, what is the world you would create? Okay, that's a very different thing. Because <laughs> I don't know if this world is going to last however many more months. But, uh, I mean, that's just, <laughs> this is true. Uh, with the power, um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think prior to um, COVID, even with the terrible um, administration that's in place right now, even with that, prior to COVID, I was really hopeful. I was looking at our society with potential for growth. Um, so I, I hope that that is still a possibility. I hope that with these times that um, people will continue to uplift one another um, and to acknowledge that when your brothers and sisters and all those in between are tired, that does not mean to um, suffocate them, but it means to support them, put a blanket around them, um, give them energy, give them whatever they need to um, continue to grow and to feel um, that they have the power to speak and to move. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I hope that um, we uh, continue to build um, more space for, um, for support. I'm so grateful that you tuned into this conversation with the effervescent Kyle Abraham. Is that laugh not infectious? If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with someone you think would benefit from this conversation. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Five stars, yeah? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Shout us out over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast and on Twitter at Black Imagination. That's B-L-K Imagination. And if you'd love to support this work, please click the support link in the show notes. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And as always, remember that Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.